0: To say to me, Chris, what are the things that matter most to you? And that's my personality, my gifting, my bias, understandably. And so we've spent a few weeks looking at a few things. A life of devotion was week one. What it looks like to live a life of devotion, not just meandering through life meaningless and without any sense of intense, transcendent passion. Then I spoke a little bit about our calling versus careerism. Because I think that is where one, one of the major ways in which the Bible and culture part dramatically. Culture promotes a careerism, the Bible promotes calling, and they are not at all the same thing. And then, thirdly, we spoke a little last week about a life of communality, a life of community, doing life with other people. And um, that is one, all of those are drilled into my kids, but I certainly want to drill them into us as a community. Because again, they are fighting the very essence of culture. This evening, I want to dive straight into talking about the sacred scriptures, the life crafted by the sacred scriptures. And uh, grab your Bibles with me. I want to read just a little intro passage, and then I'll tell you why that is so essential to me and uh, what I want to help you with. Um, I'm very aware that some of you will disagree with what I have to say, and I don't mind that. That's part of your journey. But I'd love my Father's heart to come through and for you to understand at least my sense of what the Bible talks to us about. So it's Luke and the first chapter. Now those of you who don't know, and I'm sure that's not many of you, but there might be a few. Luke's gospel is different from the other three. He was a medical doctor, and so one could assume that he used science and scientific analysis To put this together, which is so interesting. Why didn't God use a historian or a philosopher to write this particular book? But uh, this is one of the four Gospels, the four Jesus stories in the text. And we open by reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I'm reading from the NIV. It's just a nice, easy flow and understandable. Many have undertaken, he writes, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. Now he's putting his identity on the line, his credibility uh, on the line here. He's saying, I've done my due diligence I've done my homework. I want to tell you, my dear Theophilus, of all the research that I've done, and this is where we've landed. But everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have taught. You may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Who was Theophilus? We're not sure. All sorts of theories have been espoused. Some have argued, actually, Theophilus was Paul's lawyer in Rome. And uh, uh, Theophilus sent out this appeal, and he said, Can anyone help me with a documented account of what Jesus did? Because I'm going to have to present Paul's case to the courts of Rome, and I need to make sure that I have all the accounts taken care of. So you will see a lot of romantic detail in his writings. It's it's fascinating to read Luke's account through those lenses. We're not sure, so I can't build a whole account of it. But I want to talk about my love for the sacred scriptures tonight and why I think it's absolutely imperative. For those of you new to the community, I'm an historian. That was my undergrad work. I love the historicity of things. I love going back to see if it's true historically. If there's a reason, an accountable way in which we can say Hannibal actually lived. Caesar was a real person. Whether we can, uh, Attila the Hun was, was who they in mythology declare him to be. Is that really true truth? And I want to spend some time telling you some of the things that personal stories of why I am more persuaded than ever in the truth of the text. And it started in about 1983-84. I had come to faith in 1976 and been so compelled by this Jesus conversion that uh, I just bought into it lock, stock and barrel. My spiritual mentor was a man who said, I will give you a thinking man's faith and he created a skeptic and a cynic in me. And I'm so grateful for it. It allowed me to attack this with gusto. I, I didn't have to soft soap it. I didn't have to try to pretend. I could just be absolutely true to who I am. And if you know me, I'm a super truthful, honest person. But I'll never forget the day I was out training. I used to run marathons and ultra marathons back in the day. And I was out training with one of my running partners, a guy called Mike McMeek. And Mike was an artist, a painter. I've got some of his work hanging in my house. And... Um, We used to debate till all hours of the night. And uh, he was a passionate artist, took nothing as an automatic yes. His automatic was no. And uh, as we were running down, for those of you who know Durban, it was downhill South Africa. I was running down past the uh, the tennis stadium. And he said to me, Christy, you believe the Bible is the word of God. And I was a 25-year-old. I had not been to Bible college, nor a Christian college, nor seminary. But we were leading, Meryl and I, this brand new little church plant about this size. And I said to him, you know Mike, I'm not sure. And he literally stopped me in his tracks and he grabbed my running vest and he said, Chris, for our sake, you better find an answer to that question. And I was literally startled I thought we could just have some energy and some passion and some excitement and do this church thing and enjoy the ride, which we did. But I didn't think I had to answer that particular question. And so part of my research took me to an American philosopher-apologist called Francis Schaeffer. And he was living in Le Brie during the 70s when many young... People around the world would drift through Europe seeking meaning, truth, and understanding. And so he set up a a kind of a compound called Brie in the mountains in Switzerland. And people would come, stay for a night, two, three, and come and sit with him. A brilliant thinker on Amazon Prime, there is a series called How Shall We Then Live? About eight sessions, I think, in which he traces the philosophy, the art, and the history that has shaped Christendom. And I remember him saying that it was a slow shift from the authority of the Bible that was commonly agreed to in the early church. Initially it was the Old Testament which was the agreed upon package of truth. And then as the New Testament was kind of put together through a series of criterion that determines whether a book, a letter, or a piece of literature would be validated as an essential part of Scripture. But then the church said, well, you know, that's okay, but we're going to actually add the teachings of the church and church tradition as being of equal significance. And this was the first time there was a thin edge of the wedge that, be, that it was driven between Scripture as the ultimate authority. And now it was Scripture and the tradition of the church. And then Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century said, well, it's not only The church and the tradition, the text and the tradition of the church, it's also embracing authors like Aristotle. And so, for the first time, Schaeffer argues, and forgive me for nerding out a little bit, this is my happy place. But it's the first time what happens is he now introduces philosophy as being of equal importance in the development of truth and meaning between the Bible, the teaching of the church, and philosophy. And he opened the door. Schaeffer argues, to secularism coming in to try and provide us meaning, values, law, and morality. Here's the obvious point. If we shift from any objective truth, which is our text, it's transcendent, it's eternal, and it is our reference for all matters of life and doctrine, the moment we take that out of the picture, we have Germany. Germany under Hitler. What did Hitler do? He banned Scripture. The only people who could read Scripture and preach Scripture were those who were of the uh, German church, the church that was applauded by the Nazi system. So the moment you take objective truth, this is truth, we enter into a world which we have in postmodernity, which Foucault, the French philosopher, says is fundamentally driven By you do you and I do me. We think it's so clever. We're so impressed with us. But if we pause for a moment to understand the insanity, we will become like Nietzsche and ultimately want to kill ourselves. Because we realize that is meaningless. If you decide you do you, then I'm totally fine to do what I think is right based on my moral code, my values, and my sense of law my father's heart as you can hear is deeply grieving by what john collins calls the post bible christian we can throw the bible out it's meaningless it's up to your interpretation I, i always think i'm always awed by people who say that because it just shows their own ignorance Do not commit adultery. is not a difficult thing to think about. It's not complicated. It means you have sex with someone who you are not covenanted with. No, it's not difficult. Do not murder. is not difficult. If someone walks into my into my house and wants to kill my wife, I will defend her with all that I have, because murder is always wrong. But when I have the obligation and responsibility to protect my family, I can take the stand for what I believe my biblical responsibility to be. John Mark adds to that idea. He says that the layover, I'll repeat it, the Bible, sorry, the post-Bible Christian era. He says this is a layover to becoming a post-Christian church. And then we end up post-Bible post-Christian, post-church world. The church will be meaningless, irrelevant, and will disappear. Why are there so many churches that are skateboard centers, mosques, apartments, condos, pubs, breweries? And I'm not even saying it's all a bad idea. I don't know if we should spend money on all these endless buildings that are used once a week. But what I am saying, it's indicative of a far greater concern, and that's my father's heart. You know, I was saying to Meryl today, I was just sitting in the TV room without a TV, and I was just mulling over. I've been walking with Jesus for 45 years. That's almost half a century. You know how long that is? Dang, that's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of zeros. For almost half a century, from the age of 18 to date, I've walked with Jesus and I've seen this thing come round and round and round and round again. Because the enemy has no new ideas. He will attack this with all of his heart. John Wycliffe said the Bible in the 14th century, the British Oxford professor, and they burnt all his books. They declared him a heretic and he actually died preaching. They wanted to martyr him. And he said, the Bible is the ultimate authority. Jan Hus, the Czechoslovakian reformer, theologian and thinker, who was martyred. For what? He simply believed the Bible to be God's word. And they burnt him at the stake. Why? He sang psalms while he was burning. Eyewitness account says, why would people do that? When we can so flippantly throw the Bible away, it's just up to your interpretation. What did they know that we don't know? LA Times ran this article a week ago. For the first time since Gallup, the Gallup poll began began tracking the numbers in 1937, Americans who are members of a church or a synagogue or a mosque are no longer in the majority. According to the report, today, 2021, only 47 percent of Americans are members of a church, synagogue, or a mosque. It's the first time in America's history that less than 50% of Americans go to any form of worship on a Sunday. In 1945, it was 75%. This is an LA, uh, an article for the LA Times, and it's not written favorably. This guy's rejoicing. He's saying Hallelujah! What a joy! Finally, the church is imploding, and now we can build a secular society. The decline in religious affiliation aligns closely with the many similar secularized trends. For example, in the early 1970s, only 1 in 20 Americans claimed none as their religion. But today, it is closer to 1 in 3. So from 20% to 33% are now identifying as none. I'm I'm not a believer in anything. Over the same time period, weekly church attendance has decreased. And the percentage of Americans who never attend religious services has increased from 9% to 30%. Never. Almost a third of America never go on either Easter or Christmas to church. And then he carries on. In 1976, nearly 40% of Americans said they believed the Bible is the actual Word of God to be taken literally... Today, only a quarter of Americans believe that with a slightly more decreeing, sorry, with slightly more decreeing, the Bible is simply a collection of fables, history, moral tales written by men. The percentage of Americans who confidently believe in God's existence without a doubt has declined from 63% to 53%. Please don't tell me you were surprised by 2020 and the chaos in Seattle and Portland. Please don't tell me you're surprised. Please don't tell me you're surprised by the insurrection and people attacking the hill. See, when we take this away, my right is right. My wrong is wrong. There's no objective other. Even government is not the highest authority. I am. The implications, my dear friends are dramatic. I heard my mouth say the other day to a group of young leaders, this is actually all for you because you know in 30 years' time, I'll be with Jesus. And I kind of, as I heard my mouth say that, I paused for a moment and I thought, wow, I'm 62. I don't think I'll make 92. So in all probability, in 30 years' time, when Tyler is 50-something... I forgot his birthday last year. <laughs> you will be standing where I am. You will be living where I live. It's up to you to determine whether this that I'm sharing with you is absolutely essential. You will be married. What's kept Merrill and I married? Not because we flirtatiously in love with each other every day in every way and every second. I love it when it happens. Doesn't always but I tell you what keeps me in love with Merrill is when I bow my knees before the throne of her heavenly Father, and I say, "Lord, I am not in a good place. My marriage is not in a good place." And he says to me, "Son, love your bride like Christ loves his." See, this is not philosophical. When I get up off my knees, when I'm wrestling with God about the quality of my marriage, and He says, son, I want you to... And I know how Jesus loves us. We're a bunch of assholes sometimes, (laughs) aren't we? we grumpy we rebellious we moan we whinge we whine and his love is tireless and endless and his grace supreme and he extends himself towards us over and over again and you wonder at what point in time are you just not going to get tired of just jesus and clear the deck and get a whole new bride never never so how dare i get off my knees and say okay Merrill, that's it that's it i'm done I'm going to find me a younger version. Because my Bible tells me on my knees when I tuck into the objective other and I read what he says about marriage, that I'm to love Meryl as Christ loves the church, that no matter how Meryl treats me or not, I am to love her with endless grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and leadership and boldness and courage. That's how I'm to love her because that's what the objective other teaches me. And it's not my emotion. Oh, well, that's it. I don't feel like I love you anymore. No, no, no. How I feel like I love you is a non-conversation. I'm transcendently postured to take care of my bride, who is his daughter, until she or I go to heaven. And then when I walk up there one day, and I walk in that glorious Shekinah Avenue to the throne of grace and to the judgment throne, I will position myself and when I'm ready to give him all the great accounts of all the great things I've done he'll lean forward to me and say to me come here come here where's my daughter now well you see Jesus didn't I tell you I was in Dubai preaching didn't I tell you I was there for father's day I missed out father's day so I preached I mean come on there's some badges here I need where's my daughter it's the objective otherness of the truth of God that anchors me and persuades me of what is true truth and I align myself to that when I am the governor of my own morality where will I end up grumpy old bent over desperate no one wants to be with me so what is this sacred scripture it's a library of 66 books of at least eight genres. It's an historical narrative. I remember hearing calm when I was this newly saved guy. And he was going to teach through the book of Matthew. I was 19 or 20, whatever have I was. And he said, we're going to talk about God's photo album. He said, what are you talking about? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And it's the part that we all yawn our way through. You know what I'm saying? It's like, really? Do we have to have that in the Bible? Come on, give us something a little bit more meaty. And he slowly identified the woman in the chapter. Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law. Rahab, who was the prostitute. He went through this and he said, God put this in the photo album. And you su- I'm suddenly seeing the historical narrative. And to an historian, it was sublimely captivating. It suddenly made sense to me. God is not embarrassed by his story. And when I embrace the historical narrative of the text, that opens me up to the other wonder and the other beauty that is in there. Secondly, the law. Why do we need the law? Please, dear friends, don't you know what slavery does? I've been researching slaves in Rome, first century. They were there at the master or mistress's pleasure. If we didn't have kids around, I would tell you from an historical point of view what the men and the women slaves had to do or be killed. Do you n- understand why Jesus had to, well, the Father had to now give us the law? Say, said, please don't eat that food. Please don't have sex with your dog. Because that's what slaves had to do. So there's a whole section that deals with that. But please don't, please don't sleep with your daughters. It's not a list of boring, disconnected rules that somehow have no meaning to us. Understand its context. They were a broken, a destroyed, not even, they weren't even human. They had to rediscover their humanity. They had to rediscover what it was like to be a man and a woman and a boy and a girl again. They were beaten to a pulp. They were worked from early to late. They had no proper food. Their minds were exhausted. Their emotions drained. They were belittled and destroyed at every turn. And out of God's loving kindness, He said, let me teach you how to live again. It's like someone having a severe car accident and an occupational therapist says, I will teach you how to walk again. It's the same, except it's the whole human being. Oh, I don't believe in all that stuff. Sir, madam, you are an idiot. Give it some historical context and suddenly it becomes alive and it makes sense. And you read that not through, oh, God is some cosmic killjoy. No, you read it through the lenses of Father God looking down upon a people He loved so deeply and He must have said, Holy Spirit, let's help them to rewrite the way to be fully human. I will teach you. Forgive my passion, but I do want us to understand there is more to this text than whether you agree with it or not. Please, it is so arrogant to approach the Scripture with that mindset. You don't even know your own brokenness. You know how sad it is? I I grew up... Yeah, I won't be able to send this to South Africa. I grew up in an alcoholic home. And it's just what I knew. And if I had to tell you some of the stories that was just normal for me, you would say, really, Chris? Really? Is that what you were submitted to? And it was when I was older that I had to come to the place that is not normal. That's not what you're supposed to live under and the bible is this incredible book of poetry to stir our soul it's a book of wisdom to inspire our mind our neuron pathway so that we don't get driven by the wisdom of the world quote unquote prophecy that introduces me to the fact that god speaks and he speaks today the epistles the great uh, gospels rather the great story of god and the epistles the letters and of course the great apocrypha the apple help me apocalyptic writings of what is to come there is a library of 66 books it's almost as if God says to himself now forgive me if I'm wrong but it's almost as if God says I'm going to write in a way that everyone can understand to the poet I'll give poetry to the musicians I will write songs to the legal mind I'll give the law to the historian I'll give narrative to the storyteller I will give the gospels there's something in there for all of us to turn our hearts towards the great author of life himself are you with me think for a moment if you will caesar julius caesar if you were to read shakespeare's version of caesar or you were to read tom holland the british historian novelist's book dominion Or you were to watch the Rome, the Amazon Prime TV show. It's quite gory. Or you were to read, which none of you will, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon. It's six books like that. I'm sure you will agree that you will approach each differently, wouldn't you? Shakespeare's literature, you're not going to look every jot and tittle to say, did Caesar really say that? Et tu brute? Really, did he say that? No, you read it as Shakespearean writing to communicate the heart of conflict in a very complex soul and his broken relationships with people and his ability to, to tread everyone down and to take Rome from being a republic to an empire. So you get the poetry that's there. Tom Holland's narrative, you are feeling the rise of an empire and its global domination in his historical authorship. Rome, it's Hollywood. It's presenting what Hollywood wants us to see. And then Gibbon, arguably one of the best editions. My point is simply this. We read each book through the genre in which it was written to help us understand the author's intent. Are you with me? All right, quickly moving on. Whew, I feel exhausted from that little rave. <laughs> Not only is the Bible made up of Jandre's 66 books, but it's also both divine and human. Tim Keller, I think it is, uses the analogy of a French horn player where the instrument is there and the human is there, but the music comes alive when there is breath given to the instrument. And God is chosen for reasons beyond me. If I was God, I probably would have chosen 66 angels, lined them up and say, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You go, you write them. Because then we couldn't argue, could we? But, but God in His mystery decided to take the brokenness and the beauty and the creativity of humans to let humans participate in the process, I'm reading from a theologian, of biblical inscripturation And that is not denied. It is human. Humans wrote it. But it's also divinely inspired. The, The idea of formal dictation is not required, although it occurred on occasion. Of course it did. And the background of the human author is not eliminated. And so we can carry on. I'm running out of time here. All of us, have a biblical journey. Ricoeur, the French philosopher, speaks of the second naivete. And my understanding of his philosophical point is this. We start off, which happened to me, and you reach for this high point of belief. You come to faith, you're excited by it, you believe the text to be true, and then something offends you. And Jesus is the rock of offense. We know that. And we know he will offend us. And there's something in there for every one of us when we stand back and we say, no, I can't believe that. Or, I don't want to believe that. Or, I won't believe that. And then our first naivete, that sense of believing because it's written, dives and falls through the cracks. And now I bottom out with this, I don't know if it's true, I'm doubting, I'm uncertain, I don't know what to do with all of this. And then out of the muck and mire of that doubting period which we all go through, some more publicly, some more privately, we get to the second naivete where it's now deeply rooted inside of you. Let me give you a very clear example. I've always had great empathy for people who are sick. But I've never been sick. Until two years ago, I'd never been in a hospital but to visit someone. I'd never had medication except going to the pharmacy to buy it for Merrill or the kids or something. And two years ago, my heart gave in. Merrill was in South Africa. Dana was up the coast with Stu and some friends. And I went to a doctor and said, Doc, I'm not well. I don't know what's wrong, but I'm not well. To cut a long story short, they sent me for an echocardiogram, which is a scan of the heart. And we South Africans are chirpy. So the whole time this nurse was doing my echocardiogram, I kept saying to her, come on, admit, that's a really good heart. Anything to get a reaction out of her, but she's completely ignoring me. when she was finished we took about 25 minutes she walked straight out and I thought to myself this is not good about two minutes later the cardiologist walks in the cardiologist says to me you are going to the ER right now you are not going home in fact you are not walking across there we're taking you in a wheelchair but you don't understand I'm Chris I don't get sick. I certainly will not go anywhere in a wheelchair. I said, Doc, I'll walk across. Thank you very much. He said to me, go and sit in that wheelchair. We're wheeling you across to the ER. I got outside and I had to call T. And I said, T, it's Dad here. I said, you've got to go home and get my toiletries. They're admitting me to the ER. And I could feel the deep disappointment my son felt. But my dad's never sick. My dad's never in the hospital. My, my dad never takes medicine. And I wept, and he wept. And they admitted me, and they did the whole thing and put me in a room, and he arrived there white faced my little bag I said said, I'm sorry T I'm not well you see we all have that place where we doubt we all have that place where we're not sure anymore have I preached on God's healing power many times have I prayed for people had faith for them many times have we seen God heal people on occasion not enough I had to go back to the doctor a week ago, two weeks ago. And he said to me, my condition's back. So I went for an echocardiogram on Thursday night. And I'm yet to meet with a cardiologist to tell me what the story is. Now I'm telling you this, not to feel sorry for me. I'm telling you this because we all have our place where we doubt something in the word of God. And I had to face up to Chris the human, the son of God do I really believe Jesus heals me today, now? Can I quote the scriptures? Of course I can. But I don't know if I believe it for me now. The second naivete is where we rise out of the darkness of our own doubt and uncertainty And we climb our way back to the ridge, to the mountaintop of persuasion. For me, it's my God heals. But it didn't come theologically or mentally. It came through my own, I don't want to overly dramatize it, my own emotion. What's yours? Where are you bottoming out? What don't you believe? Of this, I'm persuaded. We will all have something, and we're going to have to leopard crawl our way out of that the darkness of biblical uncertainty into that second naivete of believing, as Dana saying tonight, that He is who He said He is. Peter writes, and he says, "No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophets' own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human world, but the prophets, through the, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit." Paul writes to second in Second Timothy. He says, "All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness." i've got to try to land and as always i've got way too much but let me say this all of this points to jesus all of this points to jesus in luke chapter 4 after he met the two men on the road to emmaus he said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory that's his second naivete where was his low point in the garden if it's your will release me from this please please i don't want to go through this but beginning with moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself the text points us to jesus it's more than a moral code. It's more than a set of values and laws. It takes us back to Jesus. That's why I love it. I land with some personal textual pieces that shaped me. I believe in the Bible with all of my heart. I can live with its mystery and ambiguity. I can, I can live with its humanity. Humans wrote it. But my salvation, he said to me, I have chosen you. I didn't take that to mean you haven't chosen others. I just looked at me as a broken 19 year 18-year-old. And I said, I have no idea why you chose me. My manhood. Growing up in the world I, I grew up in, some things I'm super grateful for, some things not. But he said, David said to Solomon, be a man. What, a, what an appeal in a modern world where gender and sex is trying to be written off to personal choice and identification. It's not. It's not. I had to discover what it meant to be a man. I had to discover what it meant to be a husband by the text Love your wife as Christ loves the church. On your knees, son. And I will teach you how I love the church. And you can love your bride that way. On fathering, when I believe God said to me about my girls, prepare them for another. They're not there to make you look good. They're not there to reflect you. They are there to be prepared for another like one of those virgins who was ready. Because they had been prepared for his imminent arrival and the church I love the church I love you see the Bible told me that you are a eunuch to the bride don't touch her she's not yours don't benefit from her she's not yours don't feed your insecurities by getting her to celebrate around you she's not yours she's his be a eunuch to the bride. Love her and care for her. And one day stand aside as the eunuchs did in days gone by. Cast straight it so they could love more effectively. And watch the bride go to meet with the groom and with a joy in their heart and a smile on their face and a soul that's elevated with celebration. What a privilege I've prepared a bride for someone else. That's how the Bible has shaped me. In a summary. Would you close your eyes with me please? D, can I have you please? Excuse my emotion early on. Forgive us for our arrogance we feel we can demiss, dismiss your word, Jesus himself, lightly, glibly, irresponsibly. It reveals pride and arrogance of the worst kind. It's okay to go through that valley of the shadow of death between the first naivete and the second naivete. It's okay. It's okay to wrestle with the text, is it true, is it true for me now? It's okay. But when I believe, as we sang earlier on, that you are faithful, you are truthful, you are unchanging, I will climb to that naivete. I will climb to that space of pure, honest, holy faith. I want you to sit just where you are for a moment. As Dana and Austin, Caleb, while they sing over you, play over you, Well there are many response pieces here and I'm not here to suggest I know what God the Holy Spirit is doing with you. But for some of you I suspect though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death where you are postured at the moment is the very cauldron of doubt, of uncertainty. Maybe God the Holy Spirit wants to reveal truth to you for you to see what He sees and that you may know what He knows.